Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comment. Omicron, Omicron, Omicron. That's all we hear now with the news about COVID-19. But what are the facts behind the fears? Are we in for a rough winter? Or is society on the cusp of learning to live with the virus? Dr. Neil Rao is an infectious diseases specialist and medical microbiologist at Halton Healthcare in Oakville and Humber River Hospital in Toronto, and he's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He joins us now to answer these questions. Welcome, Neil. Great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's get into the latest concerns around Omicron. Pretty new variant, but boy, when we first heard about it, the headlines they came pretty heavy, they came pretty fast, and then the travel bans came immediately after that. Oh, Micron. <laughs> yeah, quite a name. Um, you know, it's interesting that we had travel bans initiated even after we knew it was in Canada and in multiple countries, and now we're up to around 60 countries. And yet we still have travel bans, and what shocks me is that we have not learned from previous mistakes when it comes to... Uh, trying to stop a virus through travel bans. It hasn't worked with all of the other variants that originated abroad. The UK strain, the uh, Brazil strain that didn't take off. Uh, there was even another South African one that didn't take off. And now this is the next one. And yet we still think travel bans and isolating some Southern African nations will solve the problem. And we're being criticized roundly by the WHO, by many countries in the world. We are not showing diplomatic leadership as a woke country that we're supposed to be. But hold on a second. It's interesting because you said we didn't learn the lessons previously, but there were politicians out there, opposition politicians, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, they were saying to the federal government, we need to learn the lessons from past waves. And those lessons tell us we do have to urgently rush to close the borders. And you're saying, well, we didn't do it first in the first wave. Uh, we didn't do it soon enough. Now we need to do it sooner now with this Omicron variant. But you're saying, well, not so fast. That's not necessarily the lesson from previous waves. So if you look at the very first COVID classic from Wuhan, even that virus had spread in numerous European nations in November and December of 2020, before we were calling this uh, uh, COVID-19 in March. So this vision that we could have kept it out somehow would take clairvoyance. There is a collective folly on the part of all political stripes, this belief that we can keep it out through travel restrictions. Yes, it originates from abroad. So it's seeded from abroad. But unless you lock yourself up and play, say, Cuba, or you play Manitoulin Island, or you play New Zealand, you cannot keep this virus out for good. Even New Zealand couldn't keep it out for good. So there, an island nation may have an advantage, but at the end of the day, you cannot keep this virus out as long as you have the interchange of people between yourselves and other places. We have a, an open-ish border with the U.S. Even during lockdown, we had at least 100,000 people a day crossing the border as truckers for commercial reasons, whatever. There's no way you can stop a respiratory virus, be it the flu, be it coronavirus, with travel restrictions. These are hold-it-back measures for a while, but they don't stop it. We already have the virus here, and we already have people who are vaccinated. So what are we trying to stop? We're trying to stop the wind. Dr. Rao, one thing that is kind of confusing about Omicron is there has been disproportionate concerns, or, or, or greater concerns, I should say, than there were for previous variants. You mentioned out of Brazil. You mentioned a couple others. It's not just original Delta and Omicron. There were a few others there. We had news reports about it. Oh, here's a new variant. What's going on about it? Is it worse? Is it milder? And I feel like we're in a similar situation with Omicron that many officials have said, we don't really know what's different about this. 
might be more lethal. Probably not. I think they seem to be ruling that out, that it, it is more likely less lethal, maybe more transmissible. Why are we having more concerns? Why are we seeing more government action, more we must do something in relation to Omicron than, for example, the Brazil variant you bring up? What is different about this particular variant that does or does not justify that course of action? So that is the $128,000 question for sure. Why is it different? I think part of what's different is that they are seeing a lot of people with a prior history of infection being reinfected. And I think the other fear is that this is topped onto our acknowledgement and acceptance of the fact that the vaccine is leaky. Even with regards to Delta, we're seeing reinfections. We are seeing people who have been vaccinated actually ending up being the source of transmission unwittingly. So because we have this waning immunity problem, if you superimpose waning immunity even to Delta or any other variant with a new strain that seems to avoid immunity, wow, we're going to have exponential growth and we're going to be overrun. That's where the logic falls apart. So yes, one thing is probably going to happen. We're going to have more cases of Omicron. That one I can bet on. No, I'm not betting anything on that one because I know that's going to happen. What the impact is going to be on the healthcare system is the bigger point of debate. So let's go back to what's happened with all variants. Initially, they said they're more transmissible and they might be more deadly. And they are initially more transmissible because there are few, fewer people immune to the new variant. And then as time goes on, we realize that immunity builds up either through natural infection or through vaccination. And in fact, they're not as deadly as we originally thought because we identified the sickest patients first. And then we realized there's a whole bunch of mild cases out there, which softens what seems to be a deadly strain to a strain that sometimes can kill, but it's not as deadly as we first thought. I think the same kind of thing may happen here with Omicron, except that they found the disease more in younger people and mild disease. And probably what's going to happen is that in some places, you're going to see severe disease from Omicron because COVID seems to pick off people who are older and those with immune system problems. There's a huge slope of risk that increase as you get older. The difference this time is that people are either vaccinated or have seen COVID classic or COVID alpha or COVID delta for the most part. So if you don't have what we call an immunologically naive population, a population that has never seen the virus like Bergamo, Italy in February, 2020, you're not gonna see Bergamo, Italy or New York City. You're gonna see some impact on the healthcare system, but it's not gonna be a tsunami. So what do we need to worry about? We have to prepare our healthcare system for the potential of a surge again. Hopefully we plan for the worst and hope for the best. Uh, we learn from our lessons of surge planning last year and improve on it and create more intensive care unit capacity in every province of Canada. And we watch this, but we don't resort to some of the other blunt instruments to try and control it, like travel bans and slowly school closures and lockdowns and trying to shut down society. Because at the end of the day, you can't stop this virus for good. Someone compared this to being attacked by a swarm of bees and going underwater and then you come up for air and the bees are still there. And that's what this is turning into. This virus can't be stopped. It can't be eradicated. The COVID zero folly has been completely debunked now. Even the original COVID zero proponents have admitted that this was an impossibility. So we have to, to some degree, live with it. And we have to mitigate rather than trying to eliminate the virus. What to do to mitigate is the matter of debate. And you're going to see different opinions from different experts on this. On an individual level, 
there's a lot of questions about should I be concerned? Should I be anxious moving forward with Omicron, moving in to the holiday season? Dr. Rao, would you say that a person who is not a senior, younger than a senior, and who is vaccinated against COVID, should they increase their level of alarm right now or should they not be concerned? I don't think they should be concerned from an individual risk perspective. From the perspective of the potential to transmit to other people, yes, there is a theoretical concern. But on the other hand, if those other people have been vaccinated with at least two, if not three doses of vaccine, I don't think it's such a big concern. Now, if you're a healthcare worker and you're working in a bone marrow transplant unit, or you're working uh, with elderly people in a long-term care facility, and you have this disease, if the people you're working with have not received three doses of vaccine or don't respond well to vaccine, we could see transmission in healthcare settings for sure. So that's a concern, but that's a very isolated part of the population. That's not the whole population. So we can't tell everyone to stop celebrating everything because of this isolated concern, which is a serious concern for me as a physician, but at a societal level, looking at this from 30,000 feet above sea level, I don't think it's as big a concern. From an individual risk perspective, we're even attacking now kids with vaccination. So we're going after that whole population, whether it makes sense or not, because we fear long COVID in children. So we're even targeting that age group to protect them from the remote potential of long COVID if they get this disease, but they don't die from it. So the vaccine still has some value, even against variants. I suspect that even with Omicron, there's going to be partial protection, but it won't be as good as it was against COVID Classic or some of the other variants. Perhaps, but time will tell. Dr. Rao, you used the phrase leaky vaccine. Now, in previous months, the big push for getting pretty much everybody vaccinated, the justification for vaccine passports and vaccine mandates was that a vaccine is not just protecting you from having a serious outcome, but it is significantly limiting uh, transmission, your ability to transmit the virus to others. Now, there seems to be more of a question mark lingering over that as we see stories of there was a party, there were 50 people there, they were all vaccinated, half of them have tested positive for COVID-19 after that party. What does leaky vaccine mean now? And how do we approach the idea of your vaccination, okay, you feel you maybe don't need it, you're in the prime of your health, but you're getting it to protect others. Where does the science stand on that now? So I wanna say how this originated, first of all. We thought this was like the measles vaccine. The initial reports with the Pfizer trials showed 95% vaccine efficacy, enviable numbers. But then we realized those Pfizer trials, the Pfizer vaccine that we many of us have received, we're actually looking only at people with symptoms. So if it prevents symptomatic infection by 95%, that's lovely. But we didn't look carefully at people who get the infection without symptoms. And some of the British trials with the AstraZeneca vaccine started to show, even in the early days, that it was more like 60 or 70% vaccine efficacy, not 90%. And then what happened over time is we realized that the vaccine efficacy looks really good if you give people the vaccine in the middle of an outbreak, but as time goes on, there's waning immunity. So in other words, you're not current after about six months the way you were six months ago. It doesn't mean you're down to zero, but it's almost like the tank of, of gas is slowly right. being used up as the car is running. So you're down to half tank or maybe 60% tank. And so once you have a sizable proportion of people who don't have complete protection, 
even vaccinated people can be infected. They can be unwittingly transmitters. And in fact, when they're infected, they often are infected without symptoms. So they keep marching in and out. All that symptom screening you do and temperature screening you do doesn't stop you from being exposed to them. They can walk into a restaurant. They can walk into a long-term care facility. They can walk into my hospital. And there's nothing you can do to stop that. It doesn't mean they shouldn't get the vaccine, but you have to accept and manage our expectations of what the vaccine will give. The way the vaccine could reduce transmission and probably does to some degree is that it does decrease your risk of getting infection by say 50 or 60% rather than 90%. Okay. So if you don't get infected, you can't transmit. But once you do get infected, if you're the other group that gets reinfected from having had infection before, or if you're the group that gets infected despite being vaccinated, you still can transmit. There were examples early in the summer in Cape Cod where there was a, uh, a big party fest in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where they found that people who were vaccinated seem to be transmitting as much as those who weren't and the argument is oh wait a minute people who are vaccinated their virus level goes up and down for a shorter period of time than those who who uh, are not vaccinated and then there was a british household study which kind of was the nail in the coffin for that belief showing that if you are vaccinated and you have the disease you transmit as easily to household members as those with natural infection or as though so actually let me just retake that again the, the British household study showed that if you're vaccinated and you have disease versus someone who is naturally infected, the rate of transmission to household members was similar. So the vaccine doesn't reduce transmission if you happen to get infected. And so you had a, a household study plus the Provincetown, Massachusetts, Barnstable, Massachusetts uh, outbreak. And these were sad stories that kind of were the end of innocence. It was no longer the measles vaccine. And now we have to take stock of this and accept this, manage our expectations. It's good that we have achieved almost 90% vaccination rates in people over 12, but we are not going to be able to vaccinate our way out of this pandemic. There will be new variants even after Omicron that come their way. This virus has the ability to mutate, to change itself. The virus is almost like, I, I jokingly say, it's like the iPhone. You know, there's a new version of the iPhone. <laughs> Once the market is saturated with enough iPhones, it creates a new version so it can get into the hands of more people. That's what this virus is like. Once enough people are immune to it, either through vaccination or through prior infection, this virus will evolve and create a new variant. There's a belief out there that the reason variants form is because we haven't vaccinated enough people in underdeveloped countries and Southern Africa but let's not forget that the alpha variant emerged in the UK when they had some of the highest vaccination rates in the world compared to other countries. So high immunity is also a form of evolutionary pressure against the virus to evolve and make itself more infectious. The virus's goal is to infect more people. So if there's a mutation that compromises the ability of the virus to infect more people, it's not going to prosper. It's going to be like a fringe political party. If the right mutation occurs to transmit more easily, it becomes a major political party. It's a little bit like political parties developing popularity from, from grassroots. You know, it's en marche in France coming from nowhere. So it's that, it's that idea that you can get the right combination of mutations to allow for more transmission, even amongst a previously immune or partially immune population that drives these variants. Omicron is going to be something that comes and goes. You're going to have waves at different times in different countries. 
And we need to see what the impact is on hospital admissions and on deaths. We have to stop counting cases because you can end up with a situation where there are lots and lots of cases, but with not so much health impact in populations that have either seen other variants or that are highly immunized or that have been hard hit in the past. Dr. Rao, you mentioned the phrase age of innocence, and that really stuck out to me because I think a number of months ago, the overwhelming vast majority of people were of the opinion, all right, there's vaccines available, hallelujah, line up, let's get them, let's post our selfies of us getting them, and then we'll get the second one, and then we're pretty much done with this. Now, opinions are splintering a little bit beyond the way they were traditionally splintered. I think previously people who were happy to go along with everything now are raising their hand with a few questions. I want to read to you two news headlines I have in front of me here, both very recent ones. Uh, CTV News Vancouver, some BC residents will be eligible for a fourth COVID vaccine dose, officials say. And then I've got CNBC over in the US, Pfizer CEO says fourth COVID vaccine doses may be needed sooner than expected due to Omicron. Now, if I can extend your your new iPhone uh, example there, I think there are some people who say new iPhone, got to get it right away, got to get the new thing. <laughs> and other people who say, well, I don't know, I have the iPhone from two ago. It's really not that different from the new one. I, like, I guess I'll get it when this current phone dies. I'm not going to be the person who lines up in the tent in front of the Apple store, not doing it. And I feel like with the vaccines, there's a split of opinion now. There are many people who say, all right, give me the booster shot, as we're calling the third dose. And maybe those people say, all right, give me the fourth shot. There are others who say, you know what? I got the two doses. I feel fine. I'm just not concerned about this stuff anymore. It's just not a priority. I'm not lining up for the subsequent ones. How should people be conceptualizing all of this now? Well, it comes from the top. I think public health has to manage expectations. I think that's where the problem is. If we keep going with the mantra that collectively we can beat this, collectively we can stop this, we will have confused messaging. I think it's better to say congratulations to those of you who at least got two doses. We have achieved a massive, massive milestone. And let's target those who we think are at risk with waning immunity. And we have some experience, even with Delta, as to who can be hit hard, even though they are fully vaccinated. I, I saw a case of someone with a kidney transplant in ICU, and she had been immunized four months ago with her second dose. So there are certain people who don't take well just to two doses of vaccine, and it's appropriate to go after those people. We've gone after long-term care in Canada and generally done that with third doses. Makes sense. The problem is when you universalize this, like Kant's categorical imperative, you kind of run into a problem because what's your endpoint? As you said, then maybe we need a vaccine 2.0, Omicron-derived vaccine. Are we going to do a nationwide revaccination campaign? That's not practical. And also, what is the return on investment? I'm not even talking about money. I'm talking about from a health outcomes perspective. And then, in a way, money as well and, and logistics. What are we going to do? The other thing is, are we going to start making people's vaccine passports uh, expired, like a passport, and you have to reapply and show that you've got a third or a fourth dose? This is a slippery slope. I, I think we have to ask questions, take stock of where we are, gather information about Omicron in terms of its impact, look at where the impact is greatest. One thing that's clear about all variants of COVID so far is that there is a huge impact on people who are older, there's never been a variant that has started to take out young people. It's not like influenza. That's clear, any variant. So why would Omicron suddenly be different? Even in South Africa, lots of cases in young people, but we're not hearing about mass casualty deaths amongst young people. There probably will be somebody with failing kidneys, who's 35 years old, who gets taken out, put in an ICU and dies. 
yes, that's possible. But I think in general, the the overall uh, template of how this virus infects people, Omicron or not, is predictable now. We're, we're almost two years into this. So I think we can make inferences and take stock of where we need to protect. I know it sounds like focused protection, which sounds very great Barrington. But at this time, I think a great Barrington-esque way of looking at this is not unreasonable. I think I think it's time for the whole population, but public health leaders to start accepting this type of language. The more we move away from bellicose language, uh, we can beat this, we can eliminate this through our collective actions, we can all stop this. The more we can move to a, a more nuanced, balanced approach, uh, a, a mitigation strategy, the better we will be. But I don't see that change happening yet. And unless other countries start it, we've got a problem. We'll be back in just a moment after this message with more full comment. When you say focused protection, if I can summarize and let me know whether this is an accurate summary or not, basically, if you are someone who is very much at risk of having a serious outcome of this, your health profile, you're very elderly, you have some comorbidities, maybe you might want to take some extra precautions, particularly during respiratory virus season. But if you're a younger person, 20s, 30s, 40s, I don't know, 50s, you've got the vaccine, well, we're not, we're not shutting down any stores or schools or, or businesses. If you start to feel symptoms of something, maybe you should get tested or please stay home. So whatever you have, whether it's COVID or the flu or the cold, you're not spreading it to others. Let's be a responsible health conscious society. But otherwise, if you're not someone who's needing that focused protection, live your life. So grandpa, give your hockey tickets to your grandchildren. That would be an idea if Omicron becomes a big wave. That's something I said in the early pandemic, and, I, and it wasn't well accepted. But I think at this time, that's an option if you're really scared, having had three doses and you're 80 years old, and you still think that this could take you out, fine, give up your hockey tickets. So don't go to those big mass gatherings. But you have to still shop for groceries. You can't use Uber Eats for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, at some point you have to live, but you can make decisions that reduce your risk a little bit. You can decide to wear a mask vigorously and even go for the N95 mask if it makes you feel good. It's hard to do, but you can do it. But at some point, we all have some risk tolerance. And you can also decide to cut off all of your younger family and not see them for Christmas. But what about quality of life, not just quantity of life? I mean, having bonding with your family members as a grandparent can be a big deal. And losing that for a whole year or as many have or a year and a half, I think at some point, life goes on and you need to have those quality of life experiences, not simply just living numerically longer years. One of the most tragic things that I have seen during the pandemic is those reports of family members who said that their mother, their grandmother, a person in, in their late 80s, person in their 90s, there were about two or three examples of this that, that were publicly discussed. People put them on their Instagram accounts. I suspect there's probably a couple other examples that didn't get news stories written about them where that elderly person said, I'm actually going to opt to end my life now because I do not want to go into a lockdown. I don't want to be cooped into my room for 14 days. It's not quality of life. I would rather spend time with the grandkids. That is being denied to me. And there were actually at least two examples of a doctor-assisted suicide from persons in long-term care facilities who said, I'm checking out because of this second wave or third wave lockdown. Well, the unintended consequences are, are manifold and it took a long time for the news cycle to start realizing this and these are sometimes not measured in numbers they're just anecdotes and cause and effect between mental health outcomes and COVID are hard to draw straight lines between so therefore people say hey it would have happened anyway and they they justify this but there is a an obsession with COVID related 
mortality at the expense of everything else, including delayed care, delayed surgery, delayed diagnoses. We now hear about it, but the cause and effect arguments are sometimes ignored. And I hope we don't repeat those mistakes. Another bigger mistake I see being made now is the drastic use of quarantine. And it mm. sounds minor, but the consequences of quarantine are massive. So let me give you an example. You've got a healthcare worker who gets exposed to a case of Omicron in the community or at work. We say, hey, your vaccine isn't really foolproof. Stay off work for 14 days. And you keep doing that in every single industry. Slowly, it's a game of the cooties, right? Everybody's at home with their kids. A kid comes home with Omicron. The parents are now isolated with them. You can't staff anything. You can't drive up. You can't get buses going. You can't get subways going. You can't get people to work because public transit doesn't work. Some of those people going to work happen to work in long-term care. People are elders in long-term care get ignored because they're poor, poorly staffed. Um, people can't run food industries and services, supply chain. There are a whole bunch of nefarious consequences, absolutely nefarious consequences of overuse of quarantine. And what I see with Omicron is a complete loss of faith in the vaccine to the point where even if someone's mm -hmm. vaccinated, we decide they should be set aside. This to me is the tsunami that's coming. It's a tsunami of quarantine, not of the disease. We're even doing it for travelers now. We're saying, even if you're vaccinated, you have to go home and isolate till you have a negative test. So we started now in a way to treat vaccinated people as if they're unvaccinated, at least for a few days. So if we start treating exposures to Omicron differently from exposures to non-Omicron, we are down a slippery slope. And I really fear this as the biggest consequence of the response to Omicron. One of the things that I was consistently fearing is that public opinion would never evolve beyond accepting continual lockdowns. And I am someone who always appreciated the argument for focused protection and things that Dr. Sinitra Gupta was arguing from the beginning, one of the leaders of the Great Barrington Declaration. And it always disheartened me that public opinion, if you believe the polls in Canada, was typically that two thirds of people were very much in support of closing schools, doing this, doing that, locking down, and one third had some caveats. Recent polling suggests that we are finally seeing a shift. I'd like to read to you, Neil, some numbers from a Maro public opinion poll asking Canadians a variety of questions. I'll read a couple of them to you. I'm already having to cancel or postpone travel plans because of this new COVID-19 variant. 72% disagree. The new variant is causing my workplace or my ability to work to take on new precautions. 73% disagree. Whatever this new COVID virus variant may be, the current vaccines or people's own immunity will protect them from what it could amount to. 62% agree. So we have a situation where it seems things are flipping and now it is two thirds of people who are saying, okay, this is a real thing. We hope to take some precautions, but let's live our lives now. Well, that's a good thing. I think when it comes to travel, because we live in a country which has a not so great climate, at least half of the year, would you impair people from leaving this climate who have the means to do so? You create hostility. And some of those people are voters on the left, not just on the right. They're not just the, the evil rich people. And so once you start hitting the entire electorate and inconveniencing the entire electorate, as a politician, you have to be careful because right now we had a situation where this was very polarized along political lines it was seen right. as very uh left-wing to be pro-lockdown right. pro-containment and it was the evil trumpian view that we would let it rip 
And even people like Sunita Gupta, Sunita Gupta, who you spoke of, who's actually a left of center a Brit. Right, right. Uh, she was being criticized as being Trumpian, ironically. <laughs> but now we're starting to see across all political lines that people are having some skepticism and concern that this is uh, a never endum. Uh, so I, I, I think that's a positive thing. I'm also seeing in some of the other mainstream media publications in Canada an openness to seeing the other side of this, uh, talking even about uh, moving goalposts in the CBC or some columnists in the Globe now saying that, you know, that the patience is wearing thin. I mean, to think about other strategies. So maybe the, the, the debate is changing, but I still think it's extremely political and it's seen as very woke to chase down every case of COVID. And unless public health leaders change their messaging, I don't think it's going to change in Canada right away. Or unless the U.S. starts shifting away from trying to be containment focused without saying it or uh, everyone will ignore what's happening in britain but unless other more socio-democratic governments in western europe start doing the same thing i don't think we're going to change so much we seem to look to our left and look to our right and find the most cautious person Hmm. and emulate them and even exceed them that seems to be the culture right now of our federal government let's see how long it takes our government to lift the travel ban to the southern african countries it'll be interesting i think we'll be the last and yet you, you're basically, you began our conversation basically saying you'd lift them right away. I, at least a travel ban, I would. As for the testing, I think we could use antigen tests at the airport and get people out of jail right away. We can't keep using PCR tests over and over again. PCR tests pick up people with historic infections as well. It may be more sensitive to be used in a hospital setting when I'm trying to figure out if a patient has it. When it comes to screening people without symptoms, PCR incurs delays cost and an inconvenience for people and sometimes it even finds things that don't matter the next thing we're going to do is pcr kids at school and eliminate them because they had an infection four months ago that doesn't matter today that's the next folding with testing that i see coming we're, we're going bananas with testing there's even a, a clarion call out to offer antigen tests to, to parents which sounds great but before you know it it'll be permissive if you don't have an antigen test negative you can't come to school we're going to be creating an nba bubble of schooling I'm and very worried about that. School. The consequences are massive. What What's happening in Toronto is kids are going to be sent home with rapid tests over the Christmas break. Each kid will get a certain number of tests. And I say, okay, fine. If there's a scenario where you go, man, I, I think my kid has COVID right now. What do I do? Having a test at home is more convenient than having to go line up at a medical center. I take the point on that. But I do find sending tests home for kids who have been completely healthy for the past two years, a little creepy to be doing right now. I say, what am I going to be doing with these tests lying around in my house? Well, well I mean, the CDC was covering a doctor who thinks this is just terrible that we don't have enough tests available for the general public. And that's been on, on Twitter yesterday. It's amazing to see the loss of what we call diagnostic stewardship. I'm speaking now as a medical microbiologist. You can't test the planet. You can't test everyone. You have to have selective strategies. You need to make inferences by testing a few people to decide what's going on in a population. Just like a political poll, you don't phone every single voter before an election to find out the popularity of a party. You take a sample, a representative sample. The idea of testing people without symptoms, a seek and destroy approach to stop what is the sniffles for most kids, like it or not, is crazy. I think we have to be more strategic. It's one thing if you have an outbreak, if you use testing to let kids stay as they've done in New York City, and as we are starting to roll out here, But once you start sending tests home, there is a slippery slope where we will say, unless you have a negative test, you can't come to school. The loss of schooling is one of the biggest, biggest errors of COVID-19. 
uh, and our country is no superstar in this area. Some provinces were better than others. BC was better than Ontario during wave two. But we have made a blunder keeping kids out of school through COVID-19, as has the U.S., and we cannot repeat that mistake because of Omicron. The schools must stay open, just as the trains must run, just as the buses must run, just as grocery stores must stay open. They're like an essential service. And testing is almost a dangerous tool that can be misused. Neil, you referenced a doctor appearing on television saying alarmist things about testing. What is your sense of where the medical community at large is at right now? You were an early voice speaking out for a more balanced approach and a more evolved response to COVID-19. It was always unclear what the general medical opinion was because there's been a lot of doctors vocal on Twitter, getting their likes, getting their retweets, getting their invites onto the news to say more alarmist things, to tell people how they should be living their lives. But there were many people in the medical community, I heard from them, they wrote to me, many of them were very senior, many said, please don't quote me, who said, we're not so sure about this direction. And I can't help but feel that the number of people in the medical community who are now saying, guys, let's get over this, let's do the focus protection, that that number is only increasing. What are you seeing and hearing from your colleagues in the community? So yes, it's increasing, but I still think it's a minority view. Wow. And I still see a lot of this, I see a lot of this sotta voce, you know, keep it quiet. I, I, I feel this way, I don't wanna say it, don't quote me. Wow. That's the problem. And then the other thing is the people on Twitter get disproportionate media attention. It's almost an advertising service for the media. In fact, maybe Twitter should just start their own news service and, and take out the middleman. Uh, no, 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 no ideas here. Truth. No ideas. Don't give <laughs> Sorry, ideas. I, I'm, I'm being sarcastic. I think <laughs> I it's, it's a sad loss. It's a sad loss of journalistic integrity if Twitter is the is the fountain of experts and the fountain of information. If, if news becomes a synopsis of Twitter, we, we have descended into madness. We've lost our fifth estate. Uh, so there is no question that if you look at media in Canada, my view is still a somewhat minor minority view. I think it was maybe a fringe view at the beginning. Now it's a minority view. But there are a number of doctors who are starting to flip who contact me as well and say, you know, this is getting to be too much or can't we give up on at least this? I think denying the value of vaccine and imposing restrictions on people despite vaccination, having instituted controversial vaccine passports, I think that will be the breaking point, even for some doctors, but definitely for society. The other thing is a lot of doctors' views are shaped by how society feels about their views. So people who are on the news as physicians, if they have a stringent view, but the population is moving to a more relaxed view, they become unpopular. The news producers don't put them on because they get negative feedback. So there's, there's sort of a, an interaction between public opinion and what the doctors say as well. I find it very interesting how the news discussion has been here in Canada, because if you open the New York Times, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, I can go on pretty centrist, liberal media, read by many Democrats. They have a lot of news features, op-ed columns, investigative pieces asking, do teenagers actually need to get two doses of the vaccine? Are masks actually effective? What's the point of school closures? I'm not saying those are necessarily their editorial positions, but they're breaking down all of these big picture conversations and looking at all sides of it. And that's a very normal thing for them to do. And that's perhaps what's empowered many U.S. states to live more normally. I get the idea early on. Let's all make fun of Florida and say it's Trump this and that. Bottom line is most states right now are living more or less like Florida. Many very left leaning states, Democratic politicians are flat out speaking out against things 
like vaccine passports. Yes, I know some governors are bringing them in, but it's far more nuanced there. The conversation is is leagues ahead of where we are here. Well, you have a big mosaic in the U.S., many different states with their own governance and their own ability to make decisions, which maybe is a great thing. And I think in Canada, there's not so much... Uh, diversity of practice. At the beginning, I think between BC and Alberta versus the rest of Canada, there was a difference. Uh, right now, there seems to be a homogeneity in terms of, of uh, public health measures and practice. It doesn't feel too different to be in one place or the other. Um, uh, you know, Alberta got roundly criticized for trying to be more pragmatic, but the rise and fall of Alberta's epidemic may not have so much to do with the reinstitution of, of restrictive measures as people think. There are other natural history elements to COVID-19 that people forget. Wave one ended without masks and without vaccine mandates. Right. People forget our, his, our our memories are short. Okay, but then once we have all of these things, we say things improved because of these mandates, because of these measures. Right. Teasing out cause and effect is one of the worst things with COVID. It's it's almost like I can find a story that fits my conclusion because there's such a variety of outcomes. Like you've got Sweden with lower vaccination rates, not seeing a resurgence, probably because a lot of the population has seen the actual disease. You've got Ireland with enviable vaccination rates still having an outbreak. We don't talk about that. When Austria has a bad outbreak, we say, ah, see, they've got lower vaccine rates. That's right. why they're having an outbreak. So we pick and choose the story that fits our narrative. That seems to be the pattern of COVID. You make and such so a good point about the masks. I, I, I vividly remember it was May 2020. So there you go. Two months after we started lockdown and I'm walking around in the stores, no mask. And it wasn't until in Ontario, either the end of May or, or the very beginning of June, where masks were mandated provincially. And that's why I've always had a bit of a problem with the mask mandates. Cause I'm like, well, back when we thought this thing actually could have been say, you know, killing younger, healthy men in their prime, such as myself, I wasn't even wearing a mask then and it wasn't mandated. And yet now I have to kind of wear it absolutely everywhere by threat of law. Well, so yeah, we, again, it's, it's the categorical imperative of Kant that I was referring to, you know, if it's good for a few, yeah. it should be good for everyone. That's the craziness of this. Um, if we said with masks, look, let's look at people who are front-facing, uh, a server, uh, someone who is in a, a confined setting all day, and they haven't been vaccinated, you need to mask until then. That would make some sense. But we just went hogwell to have everyone doing it. We had cloth masks, which don't filter very much. We had people enjoying making masks that would have their own personal design, like sort of a fashion statement. It became a collective folly. But I think our society wants something to glom onto as a collective act like i think organized religion has been replaced by this desire for collective social media action against a cause and it's filling a void it's providing succor to people that you can be part of something bigger by collectively doing something and social media has almost become the pulpit what happens next the holiday season is upon us We've got traditional respiratory virus season, January, February, munch. It seems inevitable that we're going to see cases increase, hospitalizations. I, I think the uptick. case counts are going to go up. Yes. I mean, it, it, be it either due to Delta or this. The only thing is what could happen. Here's the silver lining. January rolls around and more people have seen the virus and there's more immunity. Or maybe it goes on till February. And then you're on the downside of the epidemic curve. And that is the propitious timing, the opportunity for governments to start lifting restrictions. You can't right. do it on the upside. Right. You have to do it on the downside. So maybe this is when we will start to see a change of thinking 
a decision that certain things can't be reinstituted. Uh, the Ontario government tried to do that a bit. I think they've held to it to some degree, saying we won't go backwards, but we will abstain from uh, liberating more. So at least they didn't have to go backwards. Maybe you will see that kind of progression. I think also what could happen is that other countries, especially in Western Europe, uh, and it's not Boris Johnson, the Trumpian, it's other, uh, it's 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 uh, Macron doing this. Maybe they start saying we can't keep doing this. Uh, even, even in Spain, BBC was quoting someone in Spain saying, you know, we don't need vaccine passports because we have such high vaccination rates anyway. Why are we doing this? And we still have an outbreak anyway. So maybe we will start to see a change and a move away. I think it's going to be a long time for some restrictive policies to go away. I've made an analogy with speed limits. You lower a speed limit. It can take years for it to go back up. Take the 401 in Ontario. All right. It's going to be a bit like that where it takes a long time to rescind a restrictive policy. That's my political science way in here that I, I think it's hard to reverse uh, restrictive policies in general for governments. It's much easier to be uh, strict. Worrisome stuff. And I think uh, you've been proven true by that in the past 20 months. Dr. Neil Rout, this has been a great conversation, bringing us up to speed on what we do or do not need to worry about with Omicron, where we will head in the next couple months with COVID-19. Thank you for joining us. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. And you can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.